Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you today. The truth is, I'm always with you on Sunday mornings. A little hard to recognize when I take a bath and put on a nice coat and tie. A lot of comments today as I came in. Nobody was quite sure why I, why I was all dressed up. It's not Halloween yet. If you will, go ahead and uh, join me in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to take a look at Hebrews uh, chapter 2 this morning. First four vo- uh, verses. Bart has uh, sort of given me an assignment, and uh, I'm going to work through this with you. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to start in Hebrews chapter 2 and uh, end in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to have to move around a little in the book. I don't like to do a lot of that because it's hard to really hear the message of a particular text. Uh, but, But we need to do some groundwork before we can move on through the book and understand really what's going on there. And Bart's Bart's been... Uh, good up to this point in slowly working through some difficult teachings, some profound teachings, and he's going to continue to do that work. And so uh, a good bit of my task today will be to lay some some groundwork to enable us to, to, to better grasp what is going on in the book of Hebrews and how it's relevant for us today, and particularly how it's relevant for believers. Now, if you've been with us, you know we started in chapter 1. We had this incredible discussion of the fact that God in these last days has spoken profoundly through His Son and He has revealed this great salvation that is available there, that is in the person of Christ Jesus and there alone. And so as we come into chapter 2, we have this connecting word, and I'm going to read this in just a second here, but the word is therefore. And any time you come to a therefore in the text, it's going to talk about what has come before. And so the author is assuming that you've read, you've tracked with him, you understand he's speaking of the salvation that is revealed in Christ alone. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will." The basic point of the text is pretty straightforward. We must pay much closer attention to this great salvation that has been revealed in the person of Christ Jesus. If we neglect that salvation, destruction is imminent. This is the the essence of the statement. This is what the author is saying here. This is the major point. Now, he he calls our minds back very quickly to an Old Testament precedent for this. These people have a history. You'll remember that the book of Hebrews, bearing the name Hebrews, was written to Hebrews or Jewish believers, people who grew up ethnically Jewish but have placed their faith in Christ Jesus, and so they understand what happened in the Old Testament period. When people broke the law of God, when people transgressed what God said they should do, when they broke over and began to do things they should not, or when they began uh, to do those things that were offensive to God, retribution followed, judgment followed. They know this. They've seen it. They've experienced it as a people. There's a precedent for this. And the author is saying that this message, the message of the Old Testament, 
was mediated to us by angels. It was passed down to us through messengers sent from God. That's the precedent. How much more then, when God Himself comes to us in the person of Christ Jesus and speaks to us about what He would have from us, how much more then should we pay attention? So there's a precedent for this. He's speaking to them about something they should already understand. This is true of God. God's response to sin, God's response to wandering away from Him is not not blessing, but condemnation. Recognize this is a grave danger. But I want you to catch the audience. Notice who He's speaking to. We might want to sort of take the edge off the text by thinking maybe this is for the non-believers in the midst of this, this assembly that's listening or something like this. But notice the author says we. The author writes with a we. This is, this is sort of uh, what pastors do when they're preaching and they're drawing everybody in. It's, it's, it's not you are sinners, you are terrible people, it's a we. He, he's, he's including the people who are listening to him and himself in the statement and he's saying that we the people of God, we the believers in Christ Jesus need to be aware that there is a danger. He's already contrasted the Old Covenant, the Old Testament understandings, with this New Covenant relationship that they have with Christ. He's he's implying that his focus is not people outside of the church, not the non-believer, but he's very strongly suggesting that his focus is on we, us, the people of God, those who are already believers. He speaks also of the fact that there's a drifting away that's possible. It's not drifting past. It's not ignoring altogether. It's knowing about this great salvation. It's those who have come to know Christ. They are moving away through neglect from Christ. That's the danger. And so the audience is not the people outside of our doors today. The audience is not somebody down the pew from you who you question, you wonder about sometimes. The audience is us. He's speaking to the people of God. These are strong statements he's making, but he's making them to us. We must be much more careful lest we drift away. Note that he calls on four witnesses. There are four witnesses here in the text. And he's essentially marshalling the witnesses as if to say, they are witnessing against you if you are so neglectful, so foolish, as to set aside this great salvation. The first of them is the Lord himself. Very, very clear reference to the Lord Jesus. Paul does the same thing, often uses the word Lord to refer to Jesus himself. He says, the Lord declared this to you at first, declared this to us at first. The Lord has spoken these things. Jesus himself has made this clear to us. God has spoken by his son. Second witness, it says, it was attested to us by those who heard those who heard directly from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, the apostles that have written this book that we're reading, they have attested this to us. They have borne witness that this is true. And if you deviate from this, if you move away, if you drift, they will bear witness against you as well. Third witness, God. God is a witness. God has witnessed, has testified on behalf of this great salvation. He has spoken to it. We can distinguish between God and Lord by recognizing that this is probably a reference to the Father, whereas Lord is a reference to the Son. 
So God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, Jesus the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and notice as we move forward, the Holy Spirit is also involved. He's distributed gifts according to His will. The first, second, and third persons of the Trinity, the apostles who were the authorized witnesses to this great salvation, they saw the risen Lord, they spoke on His behalf, they gave us the documents that we read today, all of them bear witness that this is true. This salvation and this danger is true. He's calling all of these things together as if to say, pay attention. This is serious stuff. What we're talking about is not the sort of thing that you can casually listen to and act as if it doesn't matter for you at this moment. He's calling down witnesses to grab their attention. Now notice that the statement itself, the warning itself, is given to us as something like a conditional statement. There's a condition that would have to be fulfilled in order for that destruction to come upon them. And this is key. He is saying, if one thing happens, then another will follow as a result. If A, then B. And you can put it in an example that's pretty straightforward. It, it would be like saying, a conditional statement would be like saying, if you drink poison, then you will die. All right? If this condition is filled, then you will die. If you drink poison, this is what follows from that. Pretty straightforward sort of condition. If you neglect this salvation... If you just drift away from it, destruction will follow from that. If A, then B. Now, he's not saying that they've fulfilled the condition. In fact, he's drawing their attention to the problem so that they don't fulfill the condition. He's drawing their attention to how serious this is. He's impressing on them the gravity of the situation so that they never get to the point where they actually do drift away. These are strong words, but they are spoken in love. This is great mercy being exercised by a pastor. He's loving these people. He's speaking to them harshly, so it seems, but he's doing them a big favor. Because if A is fulfilled, B will follow. Alright? Now, our task today, and this is sort of the assignment that Bart has given me, is to unpack what exactly it means to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. How, what does that look like? What, is that, what does that mean? How do we do that? And we have to do a little bit of, a, of groundwork before we actually move into that direction. And, and the groundwork really um, is something that is necessary because we as modern American Christians have so conditioned ourselves that it's very difficult for us to hear certain things from the Bible. Let me, let me explain. We have, we have spoken about the Word of God. We have thought about the Gospel message. We have, God help us, we have preached in such ways that we have actually made it difficult to hear certain things in the Bible. We, we're not used to hearing them. We don't like to hear them. And we're, we're, we're so careful to guard ourselves against hearing them that we don't catch it. It has to be spoken very carefully, and we need to put some things in place before we're willing to let it sink deeply into our ears. And so this is sort of where we are, I think, with the book of Hebrews. It's not peculiar to any... I don't have somebody in mind in this congregation. It's just part of American Christianity. This is essentially where we are. If you can think back with me 
uh, about 300, 350 years, you may have heard of a book that was published back then named The Pilgrim's Progress. How many people have actually heard of that book? And this is over three centuries old. Uh, the, the Pilgrim's Progress was written by a Baptist. This is a Baptist church, if you didn't pay attention to the name on the way in. Uh, Baptist man wrote it, world famous. It, it's, it's been translated into over 200 languages. The Pilgrim's Progress is probably, I don't want to say the most influential Christian book apart from the Bible, but it is up there. It is a major influence in the history of Christianity. Uh, a number of people have read it. It has helped them to come to terms with who Christ is and what the gospel means. And so John Bunyan wrote this in, in 1678. Now, a lot has changed in three centuries. If you were to read this book written by a Baptist pastor, you would see that he is concerned to talk about this burden of sin that is on a person apart from Christ. And this man, Christian, sort of the, the hero of the story, has this burden weighing him down. And so he tries as he will to find out how to alleviate that burden. And he begins this journey. And as he begins this journey, he's distracted. He's offered false assurance, false hope, and different types of salvation. He, he's guided down the wrong path. He gets mired down early on in the, in the uh, slough of, of despondency. It, it's an incredible story. But what we find is that the, the progress that he makes from that starting point the recognition that he is, apart from Christ, a sinner, a rebel, one who is offensive to God. The progress he makes from that point to the end point when he enters the celestial city is one that is just marked by difficulty, struggling. It's marked with trying to find his way through with a number of dangers and distractions around him and somehow to persevere, somehow to avoid misunderstanding, misstepping. And his life is really, in many ways, a reflection of the author's life. John Bunyan struggled for years with trying to gain an assurance of salvation. He knew the gospel, he'd heard the gospel, but he was not absolutely certain, as he wanted to be, that he had, in fact, been saved by this gospel. And so he works this out in his life. Now, as we read it today, and many people have, it's still a classic, we very often say this is, this is an incredible book. It talks about this remarkable journey. But I would be absolutely shocked to find a Christian in our day struggling in the same ways that John Bunyan struggled and thinking in the same terms that John Bunyan thought in, worrying about the burden of sin, wondering how can I alleviate the guilt for this sin, struggling with an assurance of salvation trying to make sure that I have done all that is necessary, I have been attentive and careful to follow precisely what Christ has taught that I might enter into that celestial city one day. Because we front-end load our message. We put all of the assurance up front. And in many ways, this is good. But this has caused a lot of problems for us. This has caused us to ignore significant dimensions, significant experiences in the Christian life. And so we, we, we focus so much on the front end so that when a person walks an aisle, when, when a person comes to the place where they're willing to make a commitment to Christ, when a person is in the baptism up there, we have this, this sort of this, this, this feeling that it's all over. There's not much more to do after that. 
the Christian life basically stops at the point when I start believing. And from that point on, I'm just kind of waiting to make it into heaven. This is what American Christianity has become in many ways. Now, I'm exaggerating perhaps. You may not be exactly there. But I think you'll recognize that in some ways, this is the way we have conditioned ourselves to think. The book of Hebrews uh, will have nothing of that. will have nothing to do with that. I would like to suggest that assurance of salvation is critical. We need this. This is central. This is close to the very heart of the gospel. This is what the gospel offers us that no other teaching on the planet of the earth offers us. That is an assurance that we can be right with God. But if we don't understand what we mean by assurance, if we don't have a biblical grasp on what assurance actually is and how we get there, then it will become for us something like a sacred cow, something that's sort of held in high esteem, something that we honor and respect, but not something that's profoundly meaningful to us. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, culture, the culture of India, uh, but in India, um, they actually do have literal sacred cows, cows that they actually hold in high esteem. In fact, they have a lot of them. They honor the cow. They think of the cow as sort of uh, uh, showing to them uh, manifestations of God, and there's blessings that they can find in relation to the cow and so on. So you don't hurt a cow in India. You don't kill a cow in India. You don't dishonor a cow in India. You may even give a snack to a cow in India and hope that somehow you get a blessing, but you don't hurt the cow, Right? Now, this started thousands of years ago. This is a very old culture. And this started for the folks of India back when they were primarily an agricultural culture, uh, agricultural society. Uh, They did a lot of farming. And for for Indians, the cow was significant in their life because it offered to them milk. Uh, It was sort of like a tractor. You you know, it would pull, it would... uh, It would uh, basically plow your fields for you and do all the sorts of things that modern farm implements do. The cow was significant to their culture. Uh, The dung was used for for fertilizer, for fuel. They would burn it and so on. You you don't just kill the cow to get a hamburger. You lose lose out on a good bit of your, your livelihood. And so the cow was significant. Now, over time, this cow that was honored, almost treated as if it was, you know, it was offering their life to them, they're sustaining their life to them, this cow that was honored and respected came to be so integral to their culture, um, kind of fell by the wayside as far as economic value goes because a lot of people moved into the cities. People began to do things in the cities and, and their life changed. They weren't dependent on what was going on out in the, out in the fields. And over a period of time, people began to, to forget why it was that they honored the cow. Now, inside the city, cows continue to roam. In the city of Delhi, for instance, there are about 40,000 cows that just wander the streets of Delhi still to this day. But over a period of time, the cows have begun to cause problems. Traffic jams come up. They tear open trash looking for things to eat. A little bit nasty. Some of them have horns, and they're hard to deal with. They're walking in in the traffic and around the, the people. And so what we see with India, I think, in this situation with sacred cows, is in principle very similar to what we deal with when we talk about what assurance of salvation has become for us in many ways. The teaching, the idea that one can be once saved and therefore is always saved, though it is a biblical truth, though it captures biblical truth, can become for us something like a sacred cow. 
we've valued it, we've prized it, we've held it in high esteem in the past, and it meant something to us when we first set that out, when we first said, this is what we think the Bible teaches, this is what we commit to and we believe, but over a period of time, although we've held on to those traditional understandings, in many cases we forgot why we committed to that belief in the first place. We forgot where that came from in the Bible. We're not sure why the Bible would offer assurance, but we hold on to that little sort of bumper sticker slogan, once saved, always saved. And so, as our experience doesn't quite line up as well as we'd like it to with that idea of once saved, always saved, uh, we begin to see people struggling with their faith. We see people sometimes leaving the church, leaving uh, the faith altogether. We wonder what's going on, but we cling to that little that little idea, that little bumper sticker notion of once saved, always saved, we're not sure what to do with it. How, how, do, we, how do we deal with this idea but continue to, to understand it properly? How do we move back in those directions? Good intentions, certainly, when we talk about this idea of once saved, always saved, but not, not always the best results. Now, before I scare somebody... I want to say this. I am going to affirm the idea of once saved, always saved. Certainly the truth behind that. I think it is a biblical teaching. Assurance of salvation is precisely what we have in Christ if we are indeed in Christ. This is not something I want to argue away from. What I want to do is I want to develop this morning. I want to talk about what does that actually mean, biblically speaking. How do we come to terms with that, understanding it in the right way as opposed to the wrong way? Now, notice in the phrase, once saved, always saved, that there's a good bit of truth that's communicated there. The, the basic idea is that if I am genuinely saved in the past, then I will continue, continue to be genuinely saved all the way through to eternity. There's no deviation. There's no moving away. I don't start to be saved and then somehow the salvation fails me and it's gone and I'm cut off from Christ. Once saved, always saved. It captures that. It causes us to recognize that Christ fully and finally saves a human being. If I place my, my faith in Christ, He is a sufficient Savior. He will fully and finally save me. There's not something I have to add to that or worry about. He has accomplished everything. He did this at the cross. But, and here's where we start to have trouble, once saved, always saved, if we don't understand the background for that short little phrase, it obscures some truth that's absolutely critical. Notice this. Once saved speaks to the past. Always saved focuses on the future, does it not? What goes on in the middle? It leaves out the present Christian life, does it not? At least by emphasis. It, it, it overlooks the present, and sometimes we do as well, if we're honest. We don't think about how the gospel is relevant now. What does the gospel mean for me if I am a Christian? How do I live in a way that is obedient to the gospel of Christ right now as a disciple, as one who is following Christ? What does that even mean? And should I be sober-minded? Should I be concerned? Should I worry about neglecting such things? The author of Hebrews seems to suggest that we should be concerned about such things. Once saved, always saved obscures to some degree, just the phrase itself obscures to some degree 
the fact that I have to be genuinely saved. Once I am genuinely saved, then I am forever genuinely saved. We, we have to make sure we mean that when we say it. We will see people walk away from the faith. The Apostle John would say they went out from us because they were not of us. Peter would say that a, a hog returns to the mire. A dog returns to his vomit. They go back into what is natural to them because they've never experienced a supernatural transformation that has come from the power of the risen Lord. They were never one of us, though they were with us in terms of, of coming near, participating in the fellowship and so forth, but they were not genuinely saved. The Bible nowhere teaches that I can be saved no matter how I live in the present. And this, I think, is the critical point that the author of Hebrews is driving home for us. The present Christian life is critical as we think about this idea of being assured of our salvation. So only when we hear the Bible, only when we understand what it says about assurance, can we come to terms with what it means to be biblically assured of our salvation. Now, what is the basic message of Hebrews with respect to the assurance of salvation. This is what I want to focus on for just a moment. What is the, what is the book of Hebrews as a whole saying? And I'm going to have to kind of, kind of walk through some, uh, some passages here, just a couple very small verses I'd like to draw your attention to. But I want to paint for you a bigger picture of the whole idea of assurance of salvation within the Bible. I want to draw your attention to how this dynamic works. I think that this will be helpful. The author of Hebrews, first of all, holds the assurance of salvation, this idea that we can know for sure that we are saved. He holds this in very high esteem. Uh, what he's concerned about is that false assurance will blind us to neglect. It, 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 or, I'm sorry, uh, false assurance will blind us and make us apathetic and, and lead us to neglect. It will place us in danger. When we become apathetic, when, when we don't sense danger around us, we find ourselves ready prey. How in the world do lions eat anyway? These are some of the laziest creatures in the world, are they not? Lions pretty much don't do any more than they have to. You can watch them laying in the sun all day, and by the time they get ready to spring on their prey, they've gotten about as close as they possibly can so they don't have to run very far. They look for the weak, they look for the wounded, and then they pounce with as little, with, with as little energy as they can possibly uh, use. They, they don't like to exercise. They don't like to work hard. They just like to lay around and eat. Now, the devil is like a lion, prowling, looking for those who he may devour. Who's he going to be able to pick off most easily? Surely those who are apathetic. Surely those who are not paying attention, who are not concerned. Now, the author of Hebrews offers a series of strong admonitions. There will be five in the book of Hebrews as we work through it. Five exhortations to be careful, to be very thoughtful about our salvation, to pay attention much more closely to what it is that Christ has accomplished, and to examine ourselves. Strong, strong admonitions. They would shake us to the very foundation if we were building on something that was made of sand. But if we are building on the rock that is Christ, the shaking is a great blessing because it causes us to be sure that we are rooted firmly in Christ, that we are walking consistently with Christ, and that we will endure to the end and see 
Him when He returns, rejoicing in that. So let me give you just some basic principles, kind of paint this picture of what the assurance of salvation is biblically. The big picture of biblical salvation starts and ends with the Savior, Christ Jesus. I need to say that up front. The big picture starts and ends with the Savior, that is Christ Jesus. First principle, the quality of my salvation depends on the excellence of my Savior. Okay, The quality of my salvation, biblically speaking, depends on the excellence of my Savior. Now, you can hear the word Savior with a lowercase s or an uppercase s. It's Christ the Savior or it's some imposter. It's some false god that I've placed my faith in. And so if Christ is indeed the Savior, if Christ is the one who is achieving this great salvation, then the, the quality of my salvation is impeccable. It's perfect. It's full and complete. There's nothing that He has not accomplished that was necessary with respect to my salvation. When He says on the cross, it is finished, He literally means there's not something extra I need to do. I don't have to be a better person for God to accept me. I don't have to stop sinning and clean up my life and somehow, maybe, if I get a hold of God's attention, He will begin to love me. No, Christ has loved us He has given Himself up for us. What He has done on the cross was complete and adequate. And as a Savior, He is excellent. He is perfect. There is nothing lacking in what He has done. This is the objective part. This is the point where I can drive down my life and I can can recognize that it is grounded in something that will not give. This is the rock of my salvation. There's no wavering with Him. There's no wondering with Him. Now, there are a hundred other false pretenders. We, we may say to ourselves, well, you know, there, there are certain things that I need to do for myself. I need to be a good person. I, I need to clean up my act. I need, to, I need to be good all day long. I need to make sure people see me as contributing, as doing something. Maybe in that way, I can make my way closer to God. I can somehow be saved. I can redeem this mess of a life that I have. I might even say, if I'm nice to other people in the sense that I either give them time, money, energy, maybe that's the way to salvation. Maybe if I do enough of those things during this life, maybe my salvation will be of sufficient quality. Maybe the teachings of Muhammad, maybe I follow those. Maybe maybe the, the teachings of Hinduism, maybe what Buddha had to say, and on and on and on. The, the quality of my salvation depends on the excellence of my Savior. And if my Savior is Christ Jesus, and this is the message of Hebrews, Jesus is superior in every way to every other possible Savior. If He is my Savior, the quality of my salvation is never in jeopardy. Our eyes must always be on the cross. The very first thing I want to tell a person who is really struggling, wondering, am I saved? Am I genuinely a Christian? I want to tell them to look to the cross. Because we have a tendency sometimes when, when Satan begins to, to, to work in our minds, we have a, a tendency to turn in and to begin to see our inadequacy. And Satan has a way of causing us to take our eyes away from Christ and we waver and we struggle. But if Christ has accomplished all that was necessary, I need look no other place. This is the objective basis of my salvation. Look, if you will, 
at Hebrews chapter 7 with me briefly. Chapter 7, verse 25. You're going to hear the author of Hebrews say a number of things that may cause you to wonder whether he thinks that the assurance of salvation is possible. And I, I want to say he does. He does. And here you see it in verse 25 of chapter 7. Uh, speaking about the priests, and Pastor Bart will come back to this, no doubt, in the future. But he says, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Jesus is able to save completely, fully, to the uttermost. There's nothing lacking here. Who? Those who draw near to God through him. Okay? There's a very particular point at which a person is saved. It is when that person is united to Christ. They are saved when they are in Him. They are saved because they draw near to God through Him. This is the critical point. But the author says, if that's where you are, God saves to the uttermost. But notice what he adds to this. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Well, what's that mean? It means Jesus is the prayer partner of the person who is in Christ, the believer. Jesus is, is speaking to the Father on our behalf daily, talking to Him about what we need, interceding to the Father and talking to Him about what is lacking in us that we might be grown up into the fullness of Christ. He's praying on our behalf, asking the Father for everything that we need, speaking to the Father about what is still necessary in terms of growth toward maturity. He is praying on our behalf. Now, I get excited when my children pray for me, and they do this sometimes in the morning. You, you may have had this experience as a parent. When a, when a child prays something about you, and you, you kind of light up, they're thinking about me. I like it when my wife prays for me. I like it when Pastor Bart sits down with me and the two of us pray together. That, that's good. That's great. But when Jesus himself is actually speaking to the Father on my behalf, he's saving to the uttermost and he's praying at this moment for me to the Father. And we know Jesus says this himself in John's Gospel. The Father always listens to him. The Father always hears him. That's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. The author of Hebrews has no doubt that salvation is possible in Christ alone and that assurance of salvation is is possible, this too, by Christ alone. So the quality of my salvation depends on the excellence of my Savior. Second principle, the reality of my salvation, the reality of my salvation depends on the quality of my faith. All right? The reality of my salvation depends on the quality of my faith. If my faith is genuine, if my faith is true, if I am actually clinging to, trusting in the the finished work of Christ Jesus, then I am guaranteed that my salvation is real. If my faith is good, my salvation is sure. My salvation is true. The big question that comes up over and over in the New Testament, what must I do to be saved? is answered repeatedly by belief in the name of the Lord Jesus. Place your faith in Him. Trust Him. Cling to Him by faith. Turn from your sin to the risen Savior. Matthew chapter 10 and chapter 24 both give us a sort of, sort of scary uh, thought here 
and they may cause us to, to wonder what's going on. In both of them, both of, those, uh, both of those chapters, Jesus says that the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So it's not simply that I believe at one point, that's when I become a Christian, when I start to be a Christian, and then I stop believing, and that's good enough. But in fact, I need to persist by faith. I need to endure to the end. So faith is not just how we start the Christian life. Start, uh, faith is how we walk the Christian life. It's how we continue to remain in Christ. Good faith unites me to the Savior. Genuine belief genuinely unites me to the one who saves. But I must endure in that. All right, it's faith followed by faithfulness. That is, I am faithful to him. And this is perseverance all the way to the end. And endurance is necessary. Now, at this point, there may be some red flags going up in your mind because we know what humans are. We know how humans are. We're sort of unstable in some ways, aren't we? We waver in our thinking. We sometimes waver in our belief. We go through periods of doubt. We don't always admit it because it's hard to bring that to Sunday school and talk about, but sometimes we struggle, do we not? Sometimes we wonder. Sometimes we wander. Sometimes sin seems to be very prominent in our lives, and we say to ourselves, wait a minute. If this is what makes salvation real, if my faith is necessary for this to be a reality for me, then there seems to be a problem. Surely Jesus saves, but am I personally saved? I know there have been some difficult situations in my life. I know I have struggled at some points. Wait a minute. The reality depends on my faith. Now, I'm going to come back, so just hold on. But you sense the problem, hopefully. Hopefully you can see that we have an objective reality. That is what Christ has accomplished. But we have a subjective problem. That is, maybe I'm not clinging tightly enough. Maybe I'm not holding on. Maybe I don't always have the strength that's necessary. All right, let me make matters worse. Let's add a third principle here. The quality of my faith, the quality of my faith depends on the condition of my heart. The quality of my faith depends on the condition of my heart. If my heart is pure, then my faith will be genuine. If my heart is good, I will genuinely cling and I will hold on. The heart is at the center of who we are. When we exercise faith, when we make any decision whatsoever, these things are flowing out of our hearts. This is a critical point. Now, let me alleviate a little bit of concern at this point and, and point out that genuine faith is going to lead to, I'm sorry, a good heart is going to lead uh, to good faith, but uh, this is something that Jesus is going to address very significantly in John's Gospel. John chapter 3. We're not going to turn over there, but if you want to go back and take a look, you can, you're familiar with John 3.16. We all are. Uh, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, so that whoever does what? Believes. Whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, believes. What tense is that verb in? Past, present, future? We tend to read it as if it's past tense, right? We talk to non-believers as if they had... They have an opportunity to believe. That's an evangelistic statement. Jesus is saying, whoever believed at some point, that person is now a Christian. But in reality, he's speaking in the present tense, is he not? Whoever is believing, whoever is currently clinging to Christ 
by faith, that one will not perish, but have eternal life. Right? But what comes before John 3.16? What happens throughout that whole chapter? Well, Jesus talks about this powerful movement of the Spirit by which He brings us to life. He grants us a renewed heart. He purifies us. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus has a problem. Nicodemus is coming toward Christ, but he's not genuinely entrusting himself to Christ. He's not clinging to Him as a Savior. Go back and take a look at the last three verses of chapter 2 and move forward and you'll see this. There are people who are trying to believe. They're moving toward Him, but they're not genuinely believing. Their faith is not pure. Nicodemus is a a particular instance of that sort of person. It says there were people, they were believing in Him. It says Jesus did not entrust Himself to them because He knows what is in them. In other words, Jesus knows there's a heart problem. And then as we come to chapter 3, it says now there was a man. Jesus knows what is in man. There is a man. His name is Nicodemus. What does Jesus say is necessary for Nicodemus? Friend, you must be born again. Friend, you will not see the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. Your heart is bad. Your heart is wrong. It is corrupt. You are a rebel from your birth. You have rebelled against God. But Nicodemus thinks to himself, I'm a teacher of the law for heaven's sake. I teach people about how to be right with God. Surely I'm okay. Surely not. If you were in Sunday school today, you talked about the law. You talked about how the law is this incredibly pure standard. It's so lofty, we cannot attain to it. And Nicodemus should have understood and all that teaching about the law of God that he continually fell short. He needed something outside of himself to transform what was wrong inside of himself. And Jesus spells it out. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Bad heart. You can't fix it yourself. He says, should I return to my mother's womb? Is that what you mean by being born again? No, Nicodemus, you're missing the point. You don't do this to yourself. This is a powerful work of God. God grants this new birth. He transforms us. Jesus quotes in that discussion from Ezekiel 36. You'll have to go back there as well on your own. But he's, in, in, in quoting that, he says, Nicodemus, you must be born of the water and born of the Spirit. He's going back to Ezekiel 36 where there's this discussion of what happens in the new covenant. There's a purification, a a, a cleansing as if by water. There's this removing of the heart of stone, this bad heart, and a replacing with a heart of flesh. And he's saying to Nicodemus, this must happen to you. This is the sort of thing that will transform you forever. This is necessary, Nicodemus. This must take place. And so... We have this basic principle. The quality of my salvation depends on the excellence of my Savior. Good. The reality of my salvation depends on the quality of my faith. Okay. The quality of my faith depends on the condition of my heart. Uh Uh-oh. But now let's add a fourth principle. Let's add a fourth principle here. The Savior radically transforms the heart. This is what Jesus was teaching to Nicodemus. The Savior radically transforms the heart. The Savior makes all things new. The Savior, under the new covenant, grants to us 
a new heart, places a new spirit within us, changes us radically. There's no turning back at that point. You remember I said before, we sometimes think of an assurance of salvation as if I can be saved no matter how I live after I'm saved. No way. There's no way in the world that God has touched me at the depths of my soul, transformed my heart, placed His Spirit within me, and I continue to walk and to live as I always walked and lived. That's, that's madness. That's not salvation, biblically speaking. But if the Savior has transformed me, I will be profoundly different. Take a look, if you will, uh, very briefly, Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Move down to verse 20, if you will. Verse 20, the very end of the book, it says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice what happens here in connection with the blood of Christ. May the God of peace, who brought again Jesus from the dead, He's the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything that you may do His will, working in us. We sing that there is power in the blood, that, that there's something about this thing that Jesus has done on the cross that unleashes for us all that we need. And here the author agrees with our singing, with our worship. He says there is power in the blood. He, he seals that eternal covenant by which we're granted that new heart. He places that new spirit within us. He gives us what is necessary. Now, let me, let me show you, give you sort of a picture here. What we have is essentially the Savior sent from God he comes to us. He brings to us that salvation that is necessary. Now, we are to somehow take hold of that. And how do we do that? It's by faith. He comes to us. Our response, properly speaking, is by faith. But what we find is that He doesn't just simply leave us on our own, but He strengthens us. He comes under us. He, he transforms us. He works within us goodness an understanding of who He is, and He closes the circle. He completes the circle. He secures us as if He's wrapping His arms around us from above and from below. You can almost hear Jesus' words there. No one will snatch them out of My hands. It's a powerful teaching. But we have to understand the totality of it. In the middle, we are fully responsible human beings who must respond appropriately. Faith is necessary. Faith is critical in this dimension. And so what we find is that God does not grant us this assurance that is so precious to us by simply building walls around us at every point where there is danger. God is much, much more prone to build wills, that is the will, to build our wills than to build walls. He is much more commonly involved in strengthening the heart, in causing us to walk as Christ has walked, to transform our character and to, to make us the people of integrity that would follow closely behind the Lord. Much more prone to do that than to simply wall us off from danger 
on every side. So how does he do this? Well, how does he, how does he actually uh, radically change the condition of my heart? Uh, the mystery is profound, but he starts this at the new birth. The new birth, however, is a starting point. So let me add a couple other points at which he does this. He does this by his blood. He does this by his word. And this is what the author of Hebrews is doing for us. When the author of Hebrews speaks truth to us, he's telling us where to be. He's hemming us in behind and before and laying out for us that narrow path to salvation. So the word of God itself, when it's spoken to the sheep by the shepherd, is a means by which he keeps us on that narrow path, the means by which he guides us to where we ought to be. He does this by our circumstances. He guides us through difficulty. Thus, there are trials in our lives. He shapes our character through those trials and difficulties, but he carries us through them. And finally, I want to add this. He does this by his people. He puts us into a family, into a community of faith, and we work these things out together. We're not Lone Ranger Christians. We're not simply individual Christians. We are a community of faith. So God more often shapes wills than builds walls. And this is a critical point as we think about these strong warnings in the book of Hebrews. God is shaping wills. God is transforming our character. He's making us into something that is glorious, and He's doing it in ways that are not so simple as to, to, to somehow bar us from danger or prevent anything real from ever coming near us that could cause us harm. He's strengthening us so that we can endure anything that comes into our lives, that we might be able to persevere, follow closely, and obey regardless of temptation and testing, to continue to cling because our hearts have been transformed and continue to be sanctified, purified, shaped by the hand, the wise hand of the Savior. Last point I want to make about uh, these principles is that Jesus' work in a person's heart is largely unseen. And there's a great mystery to how he does this. We can't explain it in detail. His work is largely unseen, but this work always becomes evident over time. That which is unseen, the unseen working of the Savior, always manifests itself in what I say, what I think, what I do. And so there may be a sense in which a person could make a pretense of faith, a person could pretend to believe, pretend to be a genuine believer, maybe even for months or years hang around Christians and, and give a sense that they are where they ought to be. But over a period of time, who they genuinely are will always come out. It will always become evident. This is why we have the parable of the soils in which we see that there is, there's, a, there's one soil, the, the rocky path, that does not give any growth. There are two types of soil that give something like growth. One very shallow, can endure the difficulties. Uh, there's one that's choked out by the cares and concerns of this world. But there is only one soil, one good heart, that is going to bring out that fruit that God desires. We may be fooled over a period of time, but we will not be fooled across time. Over a period of time, it becomes evident. Why is that important? Why is that important? Because where there is no present evidence of Jesus' work, we do have reason to be concerned. If we're talking about the Christian life in the present, and we see absolutely no indication at this moment that we or our friends and neighbors who claim to be followers of Christ, if we see absolutely no evidence 
we must be concerned. This is how we know whether we are believing in Jesus and therefore have eternal life. We see that we are walking closely with him. We see that spiritual fruit growing up in our lives. Now, we don't normally talk like this as Baptists, do we? What I want to say is that if we don't see evidence that a person is genuinely following Christ, we should be concerned. Now, does that mean that we simply write them off as a non-Christian because they had a bad week or a bad month? Absolutely not. But we ought to be much more concerned than we actually are about ourselves and the sin that we continue to play with, but also about others around us. When we see no evidence that God is working, we don't see that they're following closely the risen Lord. We shouldn't write it off as if it's not important. It doesn't really matter. They were once saved, so I guess they'll always be saved. No, the author says we must pay much closer attention. Destruction is a possibility if we neglect this faith, if we walk away from this faith. There's a good deal that we must do in terms of paying attention, walking closely to the Lord. Let me briefly give you just a few of these. Hebrews 2, 1 gives us a clear indication we must be more careful uh, to listen to God's Word, to hear what He has to say. Hebrews 2, verses uh, 10 and 11 teach us that we must be willing to live as Jesus lived. How did Jesus live? He suffered. He died. He endured persecution. Hebrews 3, 7 through 12 tells us that we must be much more responsive to God's Word lest we fall away. If you hear His voice today, do not harden your hearts, Hebrews 3 teaches us. Hebrews 3.13, we must be more careful and consistent to protect one another by exhortation, to speak the truth of the Gospel into one another's life. If there is real and present danger, and I'm going to neglect my brother or my sister in Christ, then I have not come to terms with the danger, have I? If I'm okay with sin around me, if I'm all right with a person neglecting, drifting away, I haven't come to terms with the gravity, the reality of the danger. Hebrews 4, 1 through 2, we must examine ourselves with a healthy fear of the Lord, recognizing what is at stake. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and how often do we set that aside? How often do we fail to properly revere and fear the Lord. Last one I'll note, Hebrews 4.16 teaches us that we must depend on the Lord's preservation and provision in order to persevere. All that is necessary, all that we need, is granted to us by Christ. The author of Hebrews wants us to come to terms with what it means to be assured, but he does not want us to be irresponsible and negligent as if somehow we can be apathetic and still remain where we need to be. The danger is real. The wrath of God is not something to be toyed with. Now, as we come to a close, and I realize I've talked much longer than I intended to, I want to say a few things, just a few things. There may be some here today who come in, and and the problem that you're dealing with, your issue is not so much neglecting, this great salvation. This is a salvation that has never been real for you. You may have hung out with Christians for some time. You may have visited the church several times. But, but it's not so much that you neglect. It's that you have rejected this gospel. You, you have never once 
thrown yourself on the mercy of God in Christ. You have never asked for forgiveness. You have never, you have never acknowledged before God that you were a sinner. If this is where you find yourself today, we are glad that you are here. But, but friend, don't walk out of here as if everything is okay. As if it's alright to continue in sin apart from Christ. As if some other Savior, some other way of being right with God is okay. As if being a good person is a sufficient goal. Christ has laid down His life for sinners. And if you are a sinner, throw yourself on the mercy of God in Christ. Receive from Him that forgiveness that is available in Christ and in Christ alone. Experience the power of the risen Lord to transform your life. Don't walk out of here the same today. Pray to Christ, acknowledging your need. Ask of Him and trust that He is able to save and to save fully. If you are a believer, if you've come here today and you hear the words of Hebrews, you recognize that He is actually speaking to us saying, do not neglect, do not forsake, then I want to encourage you to work hard toward comprehension, understanding what's actually being taught here. These things are hard for us to hear. Slow down. Listen to what the Scripture is teaching us and be very concerned about these things.